Alright, today we come to the beginnings of Islam. And certainly there is no single influence on the history of Iran uh, throughout its history uh, comparable in its transformative power and in its uh, fusion with Iranian identity uh, than Islam. What I hope was the conclusion you drew from the last lecture is that during the Sassanid period, uh, the Middle East uh, in general, although we know more about the areas west of Iran than about Iran proper, uh, was awash in uh, religious uh, feelings. You had, you know, literally hundreds of people who were involved either in uh, composing uh, works that they uh, thought of as being works of great religious weight or in interpreting those works uh, or in trying to convince people that they should uh, devote their spiritual lives to the uh, to the messages contained in those works. Simultaneously, there was a very strong uh, tendency to have religion become organized. This it is very different from the uh, from the much older tradition of having temples and priests where priests are charged with carrying out rituals and ordinary believers are expected to be uh, witnesses to those rituals and to revere the priests and support the priests and to honor the gods of the temple, so forth and so on, but in which very little was expected of the believer um, in terms of being a functioning member of a religious community. Uh, that changes in the early centuries AD uh, or perhaps the late centuries BC uh, when you have an increasingly an increasing focus upon religious community and upon uh, the role of um, leaders within these communities uh, not simply as uh, people who are performing ritual activities, but as people who are giving um, moral and even political guidance uh, to the, uh, the members of the community. Um, sometimes this takes the form of a focus on law, and this is particularly pronounced among the Jews, who during the Sassanid period and the uh, Parthian period are concentrated primarily in Iraq um, the so called Babylonian exile with the destruction of the first temple had uh, resulted in a very large migration of Jews to Iraq and they remain a, an extremely important community in Iraq down to 1948 
uh, when the creation of state of Israel, most of the Iraqis, or most of the Iraqi Jews, leave, or are expelled, or are lured away, depending on your political <coughs> interpretation of those events. Um, the first five books of the the Bible, uh, which constitute the Torah, <coughs> as it is uh, known as uh, Jewish scripture. Uh, the term shows up in the Quran as Torah. Uh, those books contain a number of laws that are imposed by God upon the uh, descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel. And during the period of Babylonian captivity, uh, those laws, there are about what, 175 of them, I can't remember the exact number, but those specific laws are subject to, uh, to interpretation. Uh, so that if you have a law, for example, that says that you cannot eat, uh, well, that you cannot eat a kid seized in its mother's milk, uh, the literal meaning of the law is that there's a kind of very delicious stew that you can't eat. The interpretation of the law is that you cannot eat uh, meat and milk in the same meal, and then that calls for additional interpretations as to what constitutes a separate meal. How long do you have to wait uh, between eating uh, a milk dish and eating a meat dish? So you have layers of interpretation uh, that expand and deepen the, uh, the meaning of these laws. Uh, and this is all contained in a massive compilation known as the Talmud. Uh, and there are two Talmuds. There's a Babylonian Talmud, and then from a smaller scholarly community in Jerusalem, there's the Jerusalem Talmud. But the Talmud that is usually uh, talked about is the Babylonian Talmud that specified the laws um, incumbent upon uh, the Jews living in Iraq. Uh, you have to make this distinction because uh, Jerusalem is part of the land of Israel, the Eretz Israel, uh, and, there, and there are certain laws that apply to Jews living in the land of Israel that do not apply to Jews living elsewhere. So you have some basic differences in legal assumptions uh, between a Jerusalem community and a Babylonian community. But in any event, uh, you're dealing with what becomes a massive uh, compilation of law, and along with it, you have a similarly massive <coughs> compilation of stories related to, uh, to the Bible, um, but not having the weight of scripture. These stories don't relate just to the Torah, but rather to the entire Hebrew Bible, which consists of the, uh, all the other books of the uh, the Christian Old Testament in addition to the first five. And the term Midrash is used for this compilation of stories. Um, some of the stories are uh, seem to be rather fanciful. Others um, 
simply uh, seem to explain uh, verses or stories uh, in the Bible. But in any event, you have this massive um, uh, compilation in which the Talmud has more weight because it tells people how to behave, whereas the Midrash um, elaborate upon the stories in the Bible and convey a lot of additional uh, meanings and, and details. Uh, for example, if in the story of the prophet Balaam and the ass, the ass of Balaam speaks to the prophet to warn him that the angel of the Lord is camped out in the middle of the road and therefore he cannot go forward, uh, that is simply in uh, a biblical story. But in Midrash, you find out that uh, various um, early Jewish authorities felt that because you had a talking donkey, that you had to have a separate order of creation to explain how you could have a talking donkey. So you have God creates plants, God creates animals, God creates men, God creates women, and God creates Balaam's donkey as a separate uh, creative activity. That's the kind of thing that shows up in Midrash, although there's an enormous uh, variety. Uh, there is a school of thought that maintains that, the, uh, that Jewish law and Jewish lore uh, constitute the primary underpinnings of Islamic um, revelation and of, the, uh, of what becomes Islamic law and Islamic uh, lore. And there's a um, substantial uh, debate back and forth on this issue. So that some scholars say that at least in certain aspects, Islamic law is indistinguishable from Jewish law. And others maintain that there is a profound distinction between Jewish law and Islamic law, even though there is a similarity in the techniques by which the law is derived. That is to say, uh, you have certain verses of scripture uh, in the Quran that seem to either give commandments of things you should do or prohibitions on things that you should not do. And therefore, there is a, an elaboration on this that is parallel to but different from the elaboration you have in the Talmud on similar prohibitions or commandments uh, contained uh, within the Torah. Um, Christian, Manichaean, and Zoroastrian um, traditions, um, and indeed Buddhist tradition as well, if you want to take in the eastern areas, uh, are substantially less uh, law-oriented. Law um, you do eventually have a substantial body of law in the Christian church known as canon law, but it emerges mostly in Western Europe, not in the Middle East, and it emerges uh, substantially uh, later. So the early Christian community does not seem to be sharing the same uh, uh, extreme um, concern about law that you have in the Jewish community. And this is consonant with the preaching of St. Paul that said that the, uh, that the Christians 
did not have to follow the Jewish laws because Jesus comes and brings in his own person uh, a new law. So basically the, the Christians are turning away from Jewish law. Uh, in this respect, Christianity could be represented, or was represented, as being easier than Judaism. Uh, you know, because you did not have to follow all of the commandments and prohibitions that were imposed by God upon the Jews uh, in the Torah. And you have a similar tradition arising in Islam. Uh, there's a phrase called, uh, after hardship cometh ease. And this was meant to, uh, to uh, there's a verse that means that if you become a Muslim, you are relieved of the hardship that is upon you if you are a Jew. So the Christianity and Islam uh, bear a similarity in turning away from the, uh, the, the, the narrow or at least uh, complex set of laws and prohibitions and commandments that the Jews are subject to. And yet in time, both of them develop their own, um, their own, own legal traditions. Uh, with the Manichaeans, we do not see a legal tradition that develops, um, at least not in surviving materials. Where did I just put that piece of chalk in my pocket? Nope. Disappeared. Okay. Um, uh, the Buddhists have uh, rules that are incumbent upon uh, monks and nuns. The Manichaeans have rules that are incumbent upon the perfecti, upon the elite of the, um, of the Manichaean faith. Uh, but the idea that you have a, um, a code of law that would be applicable to all believers uh, does not seem to be uh, that developed. You do in the Zoroastrian religious texts clearly have notions of law, but it's not clear how early those uh, those legal uh, uh, requirements for Zoroastrians uh, are, because many of the Zoroastrian texts that contain legal commandments or prohibitions uh, were written during the Muslim period. Uh, and not in the pre-Islamic period. And so you don't know whether they are, to some degree, um, responses to the growth of Islamic law or whether they're a, uh, a truly independent um, uh, body of law. Uh, a lot of these have to do with uh, ways that Zoroastrians were expected to behave in order to distinguish themselves from Muslims. In these texts, uh, usually you have the phrase, the good religion and the bad religion. And in order to show that you belong to the good religion, you have to behave in certain ways or observe certain limitations um, uh, because you don't want to be associated with the bad religion. The bad religion always means Islam. The good religion always means Zoroastrianism. And it doesn't appear to have bothered the Muslim um, religious leaders that the Zoroastrians are going around saying that Islam is a bad religion. 
because of course they were saying Zoroastrianism was a bad religion. It was all, um, there was sort of a reciprocal quality there. Uh, because of the crystallization of religious traditions so that you have uh, fixed books for the Zoroastrians and fixed books for the Jews and fixed books for the Christians, it's often easy to lose sight of the fact that there were lots and lots of other books that influenced people. Uh, it's easy to lose track of the fact that the Christian Bible, that is to say the New Testament, uh, was still uncertain in what it contained 200 and even beyond 200 years uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, there's at least one uh, book that was possibly to be included in the New Testament that seems to, be even, to have been written perhaps as late as the 5th century. Uh, this is the so-called Arabic uh, Childhood of Jesus, which was written seemingly in Aramaic and then translated into Arabic, and the only surviving version uh, is the Arabic version. You can go and see the whole text on the Internet, just type in uh, Arabic Childhood of Jesus. Thank you. The whole text is there. Is there an English translation available? Yes, it's an English translation. It's translated. It, um, it's one of a number of books that deal with the childhood of Jesus. Uh, because everyone, everyone wanted to know, you know, if Jesus is our God and he dies young, or at least he is crucified young, whether that constitutes death or not, well, what did he do when he was a kid? And so people wrote books about the childhood of Jesus. Some of the stories that appear in the books of the childhood of Jesus show up in the Quran, though they don't show up in the Bible, because uh, in the bodies of lore that ultimately get included in the Quran, uh, the question of what constituted uh, Christian belief or Jewish belief was uh, was to some degree flexible. So that uh, in the books of the childhood of Jesus, you have an instance when uh, on the Sabbath, uh, Jesus is uh, playing in a, uh, in, a mud, in a mud puddle and he takes a big ball of of mud, and he shapes it into uh, the shape of a bird. And then a rabbi comes by and says, oh, that's working on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to make bird-shaped mud figurines on the Sabbath. Uh, and so the bird flaps its wings and flies away. Because since he's Jesus, he can create life. Uh, and therefore, it's... Um, now, that, that story shows up in Muslim belief but it never shows up in the Bible. In the, uh, in the Arabic childhood of Jesus, uh, during the flight into Egypt, which does occur in the Bible, that is to say there's a, um, King Herod is uh, warned that, uh, that this, um, Jesus has been born and he orders that all the children should be killed in order to get rid of him early on. The good story that goes back deep into Middle Eastern history. And so um, Jesus and Mary and their donkey 
flee into Egypt, and sometimes Joseph is with them, and sometimes he's not. Um, uh, that story's in the Bible, the flight into Egypt. But what is in the Arabic childhood of Jesus is that when they're traveling along, they come to a cemetery, and there are three women who are weeping at a grave, and um, turns out to be the grave of their father, and uh, Mary's handmaid goes and asks what's troubling them, and anyway, they, uh, Mary and uh, Jesus and the handmaid are invited to uh, to enjoy the hospitality of their home, and when they get to the home, uh, it turns out that in the uh, when they enter the house, they find this very very beautifully dressed donkey, um, and the women say. Here's the problem. Our brother was bewitched and turned into a donkey. And he was supposed to arrange husbands for us. So now our lives are ruined because our brother has turned into a donkey. And so we weep at the grave of our father because of this uh, misfortune that has befallen our family. So Mary takes the infant Jesus and sets him on the back of the donkey. And... uh, the man is immediately transformed back into a human again because of the sort of miracles that Jesus, even as a uh, as an infant, uh, was able to do. Now, obviously, the, you know, if you had people who believed that Jesus was all God, to have him perform miracles made sense. If you had someone who believed that Jesus was simply a little baby, uh, you know, who had to be, you know, nursed and burped and have his diaper changed and so forth. Uh, then you think, well, this is just a silly story. Uh, But the story uh, actually is directly related to the story contained uh, in a book written a couple of hundred years earlier called The Golden Ass of Apuleius, in which a, a Greek student is transformed into a donkey, and then he is transformed back again by the miracle of eating uh, roses. And this was written in Tunisia, but uh, in Latin, but there is a version of it written in Greek um, that had to do with the transformation of a donkey. The whole, the whole thing was just part of this, of this lore. The person who wrote The Golden Ass, uh, uh, Apuleius, um, Was, was accused and actually brought to trial uh, for being a magician. And this ends up being one of the accusations raised against, against Jesus, is that he is a magician. There was a noted book written by a Columbia scholar named Morton Smith entitled Jesus the Magician, who tries to build on uh, Greek material, uh, on Egyptian materials, uh, which are fairly abundant for the late Roman period, um, in which you have um, stories of how magicians operate and how they um, how they perform miracles, <coughs> so forth and so on. And of course, the word uh, magic is directly related and derived from uh, the word magi for the uh, Zoroastrian priests. Uh, and so, when you have the three magi, the three wise men who come from the east, who are uh, 
according to the, the word magi, a Zoroastrian priest, there's also the overtone that, um, that they are wonder workers, not simply wise men, but, but wonder workers. So this is a heyday of religion. It's a heyday of magic. It is a heyday of um, very intense religious feeling over of pretty much the entire um, Middle East. And among the teachings that become uh, particularly attractive is the notion of salvation. Uh, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. That is to say, if you go back into the ancient teachings of Egypt or Mesopotamia or Iran, uh, they do have notions of an afterlife. Sometimes it's very nice if you happen to be the pharaoh, uh, a living god. Sometimes it's kind of crummy if you happen to be a Greek hero and you have to go underground where everything is in black and white instead of in color and it's all dull and you have to watch repeats of soap operas all day long. Um, so you have notions of afterlife. But the idea that you can secure a, um, a happy afterlife, uh, that, is, uh, that is the idea of salvation. And in the, uh, the first, second century before and after the, uh, the birth of Jesus, uh, you have a number of different cults that are uh, soteriological, uh, that is say, salvation-oriented. Uh, the word soter, uh, and before some of the Hellenistic kings would append the title soter to their name, saying, you know, I am Ptolemy the savior, or, uh, and, or Antiochus the savior. Um, so salvation becomes a, a particularly um, uh, stressed theme. And salvation tends to be linked to initiation so that you're, you, you're not saved uh, randomly, but rather you have to belong to something in order to be saved. Uh, and the nature of the salvation will be differently uh, construed in, in, in some traditions, you have the idea that you are reborn to have another life. This is in Buddhism, but it also shows up in some of the um, uh, Greek philosophers, uh, particularly in the, um, in the tradition of, um, of the, of the uh, Stoics. Uh, uh, but you had cults that were devoted to, to salvation the cult of Isis, uh, the cult of Mithras, Mithra, um, the cult of Jesus. These were uh, soteriological cults where salvation was presumably the benefit you were going to derive from, uh, from being initiated and becoming a devotee of that particular, uh, that particular person. Okay, um, what does all this have to do with Islam? Uh, Islam, as we have, uh, as we have it um, described in 14 centuries of almost uh, remarkably consistent uh, storytelling 
by Muslims accounting for their own tradition. Uh, Islam is a religion that is based upon revelations that are received from God via the angel Gabriel uh, by Muhammad between the years roughly 611 and 632 AD. Muhammad was is conventionally uh, regarded as being born uh, more or less in the year uh, 570. Um, although in this case, um, as well in the case of a number of other figures in, uh, in, uh, you know, in this era, um, whether the, the age of 40 is intended to be a actual chronological age or whether it is a symbolic turning point in the life of males uh, can be debated. Uh, in Arabian culture, as it's described later on in the Muslim period, there is a distinction made between a young man, a feta, and the set of virtues or qualities associated with a young man, which are called futua, and a mature man. Um, uh, who has qualities known as murua. Uh, a young man is thought to be romantic, warlike, impetuous, uh, poetic, and a mature man is someone who exercises uh, judgment uh, and uh, instead of being drawn into a impetuous action, he exercises a, a virtue known as helm, uh, which is often translated as forbearance. So that a, uh, a mature man is supposed to be a, uh, a paragon of, of uh, judgment um, as opposed to a young man uh, who is uh, more um, flighty and um, romantic. Fortunately, Barack Obama is over 40. Uh, and therefore, we don't have to question his judgment on the grounds of ancient Arabic tradition. The, uh, so Muhammad is represented as being 40 years old uh, when he has the first revelation. Um, there almost certainly was a distinction made between him and Jesus or Manny uh, as uh, you know, Jesus... Uh, is dead by the time he's 40. Uh, Manny uh, sets off on his um, adventures before, the, before that age. So Muhammad is being represented as a, uh, a mature individual in this tradition. He receives revelations. The revelations come piecemeal over a period of 20 years. Uh, they, uh, the tradition is that Muhammad is in a... Um, uh, a special state of body and mind, sometimes referred to as a trance-like state, though the word trance doesn't seem to be a very appealing one in this context. But anyway, people uh, could tell when he was receiving revelation as opposed to when he was, um, you know, 
drinking a glass of water. I mean, he's not someone who is inspired at every moment. It's only at certain moments that he is receiving this inspiration. That distinction between when he's receiving inspiration and when he is simply an ordinary person uh, comes over time to be an extremely important distinction because the revelations uh, come to be regarded as uh, the word of God, not the word of Muhammad. And by the word of God uh, is meant not simply what God happened to be saying on that given day, but rather the word of God is a permanent manifestation of God such that the word of God is always the same. So as Islam forms as a religion based on verses in the Quran, the, uh, the belief becomes established that God has contacted a number of people uh, over a succession of centuries and has given to each of these people a uh, the word of God. It's just that on the earlier occasions, the word of God was either ignored uh, or it was accepted and then distorted because the people who had accepted the word uh, did not prove to be uh, reliable custodians of the word. So those people who receive the word of God are called Rasul, uh, and that means messenger. It's different from the word for prophet. A uh, word for prophet in Arabic Nabi. is Nabi. And uh, there are numerous people who are referred to as Nabi, but only a small number who are Rasuls. Um, Muhammad is represented as the last of the messengers. Uh, and this is some, was also the way Manny is represented in the Manichaean tradition, that he is the last of the messengers. So with Manny, you have Jesus and Buddha uh, and Moses are precursors. Uh, in the Quran, the precursors uh, do not include Manny and do not include uh, the Buddha, uh, but rather include figures who are mentioned in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible or in the Christian Bible for that matter. In other words, Jesus is a Rasul. Um, Moses is a Rasul. Abraham is a Rasul. Uh, Lot, who was the messenger to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and they rejected his message. He's a Rasul. Um, but you also have Rasuls who are mentioned in the Quran who are not mentioned in the Bible and are otherwise unknown. In particular, you have uh, a prophet, a rasul that goes to the people of Ad, and another one goes to the people of Thamud, and these are given the same status as Jesus or Moses uh, or Muhammad <coughs> as being messengers to a people. In the case of the people of Ad, who uh, normally are identified as having lived in Oman. In the last few years, there has been a, um, a site identified in Oman as perhaps where the city of Ad was. 
the city, the, the people of Thamud were in northern Arabia, up near the sort of Saudi-Jordanian uh, border. You still have, there's a convention that inscriptions, pre-Islamic <coughs> inscriptions from that area are normally referred to as Thamudian inscriptions. Uh, in these cases, uh, the messenger was, uh, was rejected by the people, and then God destroyed the people of Ad, and God destroyed the people of Thamud, just as God destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So rejecting a messenger um, was a bad choice. Um, and the people who accepted the messenger were the Jews and the Christians, um, but they became uh, bad stewards of God's word. So in the self-presentation of the Quran, uh, the Quran is God's complete, eternal, or semi-eternal, and unalterable word. And in those particulars in which it differs from what is contained in the Hebrew Bible or in the Christian Bible, it is a difference because the Jews and the Christians failed to maintain the, uh, the full and correct form of God's word. And this has always been an obstacle uh, between uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims because the, uh, the Jews say um, our scripture is older than yours and therefore our scripture is right and yours is wrong. And the Christians say our scripture is older than yours and therefore ours is right and yours is wrong. But also the Jews have it wrong because everything in the Old Testament is actually symbolically coded to, uh, uh, to show the... Um, that Jesus will come and save everybody. And then the Muslims say, well, everything in the Bible and in the, um, for the Christians and the Jews um, originated the word of God, but they got it wrong, and therefore the Quran is superior. So, so none of the three parties that end up in debate on this ever um, uh, gives ground to any of the others in terms of the primacy of their particular <coughs> word. None of them uh, recognize uh, the Avesta, the holy book of the Iranians. And even Manny does not uh, really focus on uh, Zarathustra in the way that he does on Jesus and Buddha. So you have uh, a Bible and a Quran that are strikingly similar in many passages, and another holy book, the Avesta, which bears almost no resemblance to them. And this becomes a later problem uh, for Iranian society. Uh, you know, does the Avesta fit into the pattern of a scripture that was delivered that contains uh, God's word? Uh, so that's the, that's the story as it's normally presented. Uh, Muhammad is not the author of the revelations. Uh, he is the vehicle uh, through which the revelations come. The revelations are God's word for those Christians who are particularly sucked into the platonic interpretation of Christianity. The Quran is co-equal to Jesus, that Jesus is God's word. Um, 
in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and so forth. Uh, Jesus, in the help in this Neoplatonic um, interpretation, is the Logos, Greek word for Word, and the Quran is is the Word. So Jesus and the Quran. Uh, by some interpretation, appear to be equivalent, though the words of Jesus are um, are not singled out. After all, this you know, Jesus doesn't have much to say in the Gospels. He um, you know preaches from time to time, but a lot of it is about Jesus rather than being uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, this story has become much more complicated in the last 25 years than it has been in the previous uh, 14 centuries. Um, it's become complicated because it assumes um, that as soon as Islam appears, Islam is a separate religion. Now in the Quran, uh, which preserves the story of Abraham under the name Ibrahim and preserves the story of the sacrifice of uh, Abraham's son, who is uh, in the Quran, he is not uh, Ishmael, but ra uh, not Isaac, but rather uh, Ishmael, Ismail. Uh, Abraham is represented as the first Muslim. But the notion that Islam is a separate religion is not really um, not really clear cut. Now, did the people who, you know, if Muhammad delivered these revelations, uh, and you had people who were convinced by the revelations, did they think they were different from other people? And if so, uh, how different were they? This is a question that is exactly parallel to the question that historians of Christianity address when they say, when did Christianity appear as a religion, as opposed to Jesus simply being uh, an extraordinary um, Jewish teacher? Um, how do you distinguish them? And the effort to distinguish Islam from other religions um, what has made it complicated is that nobody contests the fact that armies from Arabia conquered the surrounding territory um, between, uh, say, 634 and 711. That say, for that period of time, everything between Spain and Pakistan falls under the sway of armies coming out of Arabia. The Persian Empire disappears and becomes part of this Arab Empire. Uh, large parts of the Byzantine Empire fall away so that Egypt and Syria and Tunisia uh, become part of the Arab Empire. And areas further uh, west that adhered to uh, to Catholicism, such as Spain, become part of this Arab Empire. So nobody contests that there is a um, political narrative 
in which Arabs conquer a huge territory. Whether they are all Arabs is very debatable, but nobody bothers to debate it. In other words, the army that invaded Spain was certainly not an Arab army. It was an army of North Africans <laughs> with some Arab leaders. And the likelihood is that those North Africans have probably been crossing the Strait of Gibraltar into Spain for hundreds of years. But normally we simply attribute this all to a unified uh, period of conquest. There's a historical uh, practice that goes back really to the uh, late 19th century, particularly in, among German um, historians, that political narratives are true because they are documentable. In other words, you can have a text of a treaty, you can have a eyewitness um, participant in a battle. Uh, you have a reliable political narrative. But that tradition says that spiritual narratives are intrinsically untrue because people who are writing the history of their religious community uh, invented it, whereas those who are writing the history of their political community um, uh, tell it truthfully. Uh, you can go back to, say, the, the, uh, the primary Orientalist journal in, uh, in Germany at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. It was called Der Islam. The editor was Karl Becker. And in his inaugural uh, essay, when the journal started, he makes this distinction. He says that, you, that he, he's prepared to write about the political history, the military history, but he doesn't necessarily believe in any of the religious uh, history. Uh, and when he came to write uh, two extensive essays in the Cambridge history of uh, the Cambridge medieval history. One of them was called The Expansion of the Saracens in the East. The other is called The Expansion of the Saracens in the West. He deliberately avoided using a phrase like Islamic conquest. Nor does he use the word Arab. He says Saracens. You know, and this is a term that comes uh, becomes common in Europe during the Crusades and goes back to earlier uh, Greek <coughs> Greek texts, trying to identify the people who carried out the conquests as a, as a military and political force, but not necessarily as a religious, um, as a religious group. So what has happened in the last 25 years is that a handful of scholars, uh, which has now got to be a pretty big handful, have gone back to the skepticism that Becker had at the beginning of the 20th century and have said that what Muslims say about their religion is intrinsically partisan and tendentious and cannot be believed. Uh, therefore, if you want to find out about Islam in its earliest uh, manifestations, you should find out what the non-Muslims have to say about it. Well, it's not going to be balanced, but at least uh, it's a different way of doing it. Um, the reason it, it became an important point of view 
is that there is great skepticism as to whether there are any surviving Islamic narratives before the year 700. Uh, whereas we have a fair number of non-Muslim uh, texts that go back before 700. So what uh, these individuals did was to say that the way to find out what Islam was like uh, before the year 700, that is to say during the, uh, the conquest period and during the putative lifetime of Muhammad, uh, the way to find out what Islam was about was to find out what Christians and Jews uh, thought about, uh, thought was happening. So they went into to a number of texts. Uh, this is um, in a book that has become very influential. Uh, <coughs> name of the book is Hagarism. Uh, the authors are Michael Cook, uh, who's currently professor at Princeton, and Patricia Crona, who is the medieval Islamic specialist at the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. Um, they wrote Hagarism in which they, uh, they said in a particularly um, snappy and offensive style of prose, uh, which is Patricia Crona's specialty. Um, they said that uh, there was no Islam. Uh, and they say it because the word Islam doesn't show up in these non-Muslim sources. Instead, they find the word Hagarism, meaning uh, two things. One, descent from Hagar, who was the handmaiden of Sarah and the mother of Ismail or Ishmael. So that would suggest that you had an awareness that the story that the Arabs were telling about their religion uh, recognized that it was different from the story of Abraham and Isaac, but rather it was the story of Ibrahim and Ismail. On the other hand, Hagarism um, was related to the root HJR uh, in Arabic, uh, which is uh, the root, uh, the root meaning has to do with the migration. So the beginning of Islam was uh, called a hijra. Well, what happened in this hijra, according to the Muslim story, is that in 622, when Muhammad had been uh, receiving revelations for 11 years, at a time when the community in Mecca was under uh, extremely strong uh, pressure from people who felt that they could not tolerate Muhammad's claim that there was only one God and that he was God's messenger, um, you had a migration of Muhammad and all of his followers uh, from the city of Mecca, where he uh, was born, uh, northward a couple hundred miles to the city of Medina. And this hijra is then taken to be um, year one or day one of the Muslim calendar. So Cook and Krona said, 
when you have versions of the word Hagar, Mahagaratai, or whatever it, however it comes out, that it carries two overtones. One of them is that it relates to Hagar, uh, the handmaid of Sarah, and the other is that it relates to the Hijra, to the people who uh, supposedly traveled with Muhammad on this migration. But the word Islam doesn't show up. The name Muhammad doesn't show up. And the word Quran doesn't show up. Uh, more recent work has taken a broader canvas of all the texts that are available <coughs> before the year 700 or 710, during the conquest period. Uh, this is work by uh, Robert Poyland, who has brought in more, more sources, uh, Armenian sources, Iranian sources, a whole bunch of sources. And what he finds is that, well, actually, the name Muhammad does appear. And the word Islam does appear, uh, but it's not that, but they're just occasional appearances as opposed to being um, some sort of dominating uh, form. It's also, uh, if you take the word Hagarism, you'll find that as late as the 12th century in Hungary, um, Christian monks who wrote about the Muslims called them Hagarites. Uh, because it became a standard term used by, by Christians, regardless of where the term originated. So the book Hagarism, which proposed that there was no Islam uh, and there was no Quran and perhaps there was no Muhammad uh, in the first um, century during which Islam uh, carried out, supposedly, these enormous conquests. Uh, the book Hagarism has um, become more of a symbol for this hyper-skeptical school of thought than it has a definitive text. Um, Michael Cook has more or less walked away from the book and no longer takes responsibility for it. But then, you know, he walked away from, or rather, Patricia Corona walked away from him and started living with another man, and that <laughs> may have affected the whole thing as well, <laughs> since they were they were uh, a number at the time they wrote the book. Um, so far as I can tell, uh, Patricia still holds uh, by Hagarism. But yeah. If there was a connection, I would have used it in my lit hum class earlier today because we, the stories are so suggestive of Agamemnon sacrificing Iphigenia. But um, but if you if you look into the um, the Canaanite religion, that is say the religion not just of the Israelites but of all of the people speaking similar languages, living in uh, along the Mediterranean coast. Uh, back in the time of Abraham, uh, child sacrifice was common. Uh, it's referred to a number of times um, in the Hebrew Bible, and 
the Carthaginians uh, of Tunisia who originated as uh, settlers from Lebanon uh, and who carried with them to North Africa the religious practices of Lebanon, uh, they actively uh, sacrificed uh, children. Uh, and there have been archaeological excavations that have uncovered um, um, altars or called a tophet. Uh, th these supposedly are the sites where the sacrificed children were, were buried or thrown into a pit and they found hundreds and hundreds of infant bones. Some archaeologists say, oh, you know, they all died of, you know, meningitis or something, and it's, a, it's not how to do a sacrifice, but most scholars uh, are willing to accept the idea that that child sacrifice uh, was commonplace. So it, when it shows up in the Greek tradition, particularly given the, the extremely strong Greek associations with, with uh, Phoenicia, you know, the Greeks took their alphabet from the Phoenicians, they took all sorts of things from the Phoenicians, the idea that the practice of child sacrifice might have been borrowed into Greece from the Phoenicians, though not necessarily from the Israelites. Uh, it's plausible. You just there's no text that would pin that down. Yeah. Is there any explanation why this is so prevalent? Child sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, During that time. When well, there there are two uh, there are two things. One is in the Carthaginian materials. <coughs> We know of sacrifices that took place um, when there was a crisis. You know, you're you're losing a war, and so the king sacrifices his son. Uh, so you have that that type of thing where you're propitiating the gods, and this is what you have happens with Iphigenia and Agamemnon. The the fleet of the Achaeans is stranded, and the only way to get the winds to blow again is to sacrifice Iphigenia, which really annoys her mother and she kills dad and goes on and on. Um, but the other has to do with the idea of, um, of sacrificing first fruits. And this is something that is uh, uh, very, very strongly established uh, in the Hebrew Bible, is that the first fruits of everything you produce should be sacrificed uh, to God, so the firstborn of your uh, of your sheep uh, is sacrificed to God. The first harvest you have from your vineyard is sacrificed to God. Um, there is only one exception. I mean, you could say that the firstborn should be sacrificed as part of the first fruits tradition of sacrificing to God, and that may have been part of it. There is only one exception to this in the Hebrew Bible, and that is that you are prohibited from sacrificing the firstborn of your donkey to God. However, you, as in the case of Abraham, God tells you to sacrifice your son, and then God provides a substitute so that when your donkey has a foal, uh, you must provide a substitute. You still have to have a sacrifice, but it has to be a sheep. Uh, and not the donkey. So what do you do if you don't have a sheep uh, to take the place of your newborn donkey? Then you have to kill the donkey. But it's not a sacrifice. That's just killing the donkey. You have to break its neck. Um, the two stories, Abraham and Isaac, 
and the story of of a fur of, of a donkey are both are, are very closely related, though they never get interpreted this way, except by me. Um, they're they're related because they're two ways in which the Israelites are distinguishing their religious cult from the religious cults of the people around them. Uh, the people around them sacrifice children, so the Israelites create a, uh, a myth to explain why they do not sacrifice children. The people around them sacrifice donkeys because they regard donkeys as sacred. Um, but uh, the Israelites do not sacrifice donkeys because they're trying to distinguish themselves from priests like Balaam and the ass who, who uses a donkey as an intermediary uh, with the unseen world. So the, the whole sacrifice uh, situation with regard to children is um, it, it's hard to know where to go with it. I mean, the, uh, there are other traditions where you where you sacrifice people on uh, at the death of someone, but the sacrifice of newborn seems to be a Canaanite specialty. Um, not that I can think of. Um, all right, let's go back to to Hagarism and Cook and Krona. As you may have inferred, um, I I thought Hagarism was a terrible book, um, <laughs> and that it was a um, a bad approach. Uh, the idea that if you have earlier information, it is intrinsically more reliable than, than later information, is not normally an acceptable historiographical principle because you, later information may actually have um, uh, better sources. I mean, for example, if Henry Kissinger's grandchild said, you know, granddaddy told me that when he went to China, he did such and such. And the only other thing you have about his going to China is the headline of the New York Post on the day he went. You know, Kissinger kisses the Chinese, or whatever it is. Um, you know, you might be inclined to think that something that claims to be direct evidence from Kissinger outweighs the headline in the, uh, in the New York Post. And of course, the problem with relying on monks and priests of uh, and rabbis who are wedded to various Christian and Jewish uh, sects is that, first of all, how did they know what the Arabs believed? Because they didn't speak Arabic. They spoke uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, perhaps, or Greek, perhaps, Armenian. But they didn't speak Arabic. Arabic was only spoken in the Arabian Peninsula. So how would they have known what the Arabs believed? And secondly, why would they have been honest representatives of that belief um, if they had known about it. So that the, the, the particular claim of Hagarism no longer weighs as heavily as it did when the book was first published and it became something of a sensation. But other arguments have been raised that uh, attack the whole thing from a different point of view. And they're mostly associated with uh, with an American scholar named John Wansborough, um, 
whose books I think are now being republished. Uh, they weren't read much when they came out because he's a terrible writer and his books are almost impenetrable. However, he, he argued, uh, and this has become more influential in many respects than what Cook and Crona argued. He argued that, the, um, that if you look at all of the uh, inscriptions on stones in the desert or uh, fragments of this and that, going back to the time of early Islam, you find that there are a lot of phrases that kind of sound like the Quran, but aren't actually in the Quran. Um, usually these are attributed to being misquotations. But he's, his argument was that during this period of intense religiosity uh, throughout the region, you had a kind of floating um, body of religious uh, lore, not even lore so much as religious um, phraseology. He calls them prophetic logia, from this word logos for word. Um, and he says that the Quran, uh, as we have it, represents a kind of distillation of the prophetic logia that were current throughout the Middle East, sometimes in Jewish circles, sometimes in Christian circles, sometimes in Gnostic circles, <coughs> that this was just sort of a floating body of literature. Um, and that it all gets put together, and in his view, it's put together <coughs> in order to teach the doctrine of salvation. So that uh, he sees the Quran primarily as a soteriological text that is um, dedicated to uh, to providing an avenue for salvation. But he says that this he argues that in order that the people who knew these prophetic logia. Um, were really uh, specialists on religion, that they knew what was around, that they were not simply merchants hanging out in Western Arabia as Muhammad is represented to be in the Muslim biography of Muhammad, but rather they were, uh, they were religious specialists. And he argued that they, the place to look for the origins of the Quran is in Iraq, because that is where there were more uh, Jewish and Christian um, religious thinkers than anywhere else, and nobody would quarrel with that, although maybe Syria would be another candidate. And he would say that the likelihood is that the Quran was written about 200 years after the supposed lifetime of Muhammad. He says that first you had a political conquest and the establishment of an empire then after the empire was established, uh, the people who established the empire felt that they needed a foundation myth to, to certify and um, legitimize uh, their rule as an independent state. So the religion of Islam uh, and its scripture and the stories about its prophet are all 
products of the late 700s in Iraq rather than being products of Arabia in the early 600s. John Wansborough had no interest in history whatsoever. He was purely interested in dissecting and analyzing sacred texts. So whether his theory made any sense really wasn't his concern, whether it made any sense historically. He said it made sense textually, and that you could look at the Koran, and when you read the Koran, what you found was a jumble of images and stories and commandments and prohibitions and so forth that are assembled in no coherent fashion, but there's just sort of one damn thing after another, and the only way to make sense of it is to assume that basically it was a committee work. You had a bunch of rabbis got together and said, okay, today let's compose the story of Jesus for the people, or let's do this or that. Wansborough's ideas, I must say I think they're just as nutty as Cook and Cronin's ideas, but I'm trying to be generous here, because this has become the primary cut point in the study of Islam. If you are thinking of applying for a job to teach Islamic studies at a university in the United States or in Europe, you had better be able to talk about the pros and cons of all this argumentation. And the thing is there are real problems with the story of Muhammad. I don't think the problems are solved in particular, nor does it make sense to me that the Koran was composed in Iraq 200 years after Muhammad by putting together all of these prophetic logia, because the people who lived in Iraq didn't speak Arabic. They spoke Aramaic. So why did they put the Koran together in Arabic, which was not their language? Of course, it was a language of the conquerors. But how did they get all these logia together, which presumably were in a variety of languages, and sort of come together in an undefined fashion? Neither Cook nor Cronin nor Wansbrenn nor any of the other worthies who have adopted this approach have ever explained how it actually would have worked. At one point, Patricia Cronin, in another of her books, raises the question as to whether Muhammad ever existed. And she says, I thought about this, and I thought, well, maybe he existed, and then I thought, well, maybe he didn't. But I guess maybe he did. And that's kind of the way she leaves it. It's an extremely unattractive style of writing. But what it's done is to put at the head of the agenda for discussion what is the religious atmosphere in which Islam comes to be. I have a question about the Aramaic language. Isn't the Aramaic 
Yes. Aramaic was the standard language of Iraq, Palestine, and Syria at the time of the Arab conquest. Aramaic is a different language from Arabic, but it is related to Arabic. One scholar maintains that the Quran is not in Arabic, and he says that it is in Aramaic. It's a little hard to grasp. It's also very clear that Arabic was not nearly as uniform a language at the time of the putative time of the prophet as it appears to be. The Quran becomes like the Lutheran Bible or the Divine Comedy of Dante. It becomes the literary the literary monument that solidifies the Arabic language. In other words, we have at least one collection of poetry from the area around Mecca from the tribe of Hudhayl in which the language, the Hudhayli dialect is different from the dialect of Mecca. For example, everybody knows that the word the in Arabic is al, al hyphen. And in Hebrew, the word for the is ha, ha. But there were some dialects of Arabic back in the time of the prophet that used ha for the word the. And others would use al. So there have been a substantial amount of work on dialectology for early Arabic. But the one thing that comes out is that those rabbis in Iraq 200 years later must have been extraordinary linguists to have kind of created this model Arabic language which was not the language that they actually spoke. So it's very murky. Now this is not a trivial topic. Obviously it's not trivial because it deals with the foundations of the faith of a billion plus people around the world. And it's not a trivial topic because it is totally without merit. Even people who disagree strongly with the theses put forward by the skeptics grant that they have raised some very interesting questions like when did the followers of Muhammad decide that they belonged to a separate religion as opposed to simply having their own teacher. Also the question would be like did they really ever see themselves or even want to see themselves as separate communities? The definition of Islam itself means submission. So maybe they thought they were continuing the pure religious tradition that goes back to all the other religions. In the Islamic tradition you say Islam means submission. Submission to the will of God. Abraham submitted to the will of God. All Muslims submitted to the will of God. Therefore Islam is the name of the religion. But this argument is that that's circular. That that is simply part of the construction. So that Professor Fred Donner at Chicago has said in the first 30 years instead of talking about Muslims you should talk about Mu'minin. There's a word that means believers. And the title that is adopted by the person who follows Muhammad as the leader of the community after Muhammad's death in 632 
is Amir al-Mu'minin, meaning the commander of the faithful, the commander of the believers. So Donner would say, well, what, you know, how long do you go before you, you go from having Mu'minin believers to having Muslims, people who adhere to a separate uh, religion? And in the early, uh, in the conquest, when you have references to conversion uh, to Islam, they're complicated by the fact that Islam not only means submission to the will of God, but also means surrender uh, in a battle. So when you have a conquest and the people um, accept Islam, does that mean they're accepting a religion or, the, or that they're surrendering and they're accepting the dominance of the Arabs? Is it a religious term or is it a secular term? Um, if all one had to worry about was the Quran itself, uh, that would only be part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is that for the people who became Muslims, now, everybody agrees that you had a conquest. Everyone agrees that a huge number of people uh, are now ruled by Arabs. Um, probably you have something like a million Arabs over a period of a century who spread out from Spain to Pakistan, ruling over um, a population that is uh, many times greater than the Arabs, uh, and ruling over a population that, by and large, does not understand the Arabic language. And most of the people conquered never saw an Arab, because the Arabs tended to be, say, in their military camps. So when you have a holy book that is in a language that the people whom you have conquered do not know, um, how do you? How does anyone become a Muslim? There were translations back then. No, there were no translations that are. No, I mean not translation, but like they try to translate the message. Of I, you, know, you can't find a text that will go back to the conquest period that has that. Um, and in fact, what you have more than the words of the Quran is that you have stories about Muhammad, uh, and these stories are called hadith. There's an argument to be made that the stories about Muhammad were more important than the text of the of the Quran. That they are more influential. Well, it's still like that. Uh, it's still like that now, but we're talking about them. And you also have um, have the question of where did these stories about Muhammad come from? Um, were they generated on the spot um, by somebody who wanted to convince someone of something? Or do they actually go back and tell about things that happened during the lifetime of a real person living in Mecca, Medina, between uh, 570 and 632? Uh, there's a parallel here with the childhood of Jesus. Um, or the stories about Manny where you have the scripture itself, and then you have a, 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 a semi-scriptural uh, body of lore that accumulates around the scripture, but is different from the scripture. So that things that are in Hadith may differ from what's in the Quran. Things that are about Jesus but are not in the Bible will differ from what it says uh, in the Bible. And you have to assume, given the religious climate of that time, 
that people heard many, many different things in a variety of languages, and that it's the subsequent crystallization of the revelation, the New Testament or the Quran, as the sole source of authority. That is part of the problem, because those scriptures are, to some degree, um, are some degree problematic, either in their how they come into being, or in the degree to which they um, they influence people to uh, to change their religion. If, if, if this lecture has been crystal clear, then I've made a mistake. Um, uh, in, the whole thing, because it's it's extremely complicated, and I'm going to have to go back into it more uh, next Tuesday, um, where I'm going to talk more about the life of Muhammad as we normally think of it, and particularly about the conquests uh, that occur after his death. I once read in Muhammad Iqbal's book that there was actually, when the, the Moors actually had instances where the, the player was in like their native language, in the, 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 the